Hello, listeners, and welcome to today's episode of Blind Insights. It must nearly be two months ago now, my wife Karen and I were at the farmer's market at Wayville Showgrounds, where you should all go and buy nice produce, and we found a stand selling cider, and then we noticed that they had quince gin, and then we noticed they had mead, and we started talking to the gentleman who had a beautiful accent, and we bought lots of products and took them home, and the mead lasted about an hour, and the quince gin lasted about two weeks. And then we went back again a month later and bought a whole pile of cider, which only lasted one night. So today we are talking to the man who makes all this amazing stuff. We are going to talk to Warwick Billings from Lobo Cider at Lenswood. The ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it is something that we make and could just as easily make differently. David Graeber, 1961 to 2020. Welcome to Blind Insights, a podcast we call A Haphazard Guide to Living, hosted by philosophy master David Olney and myself, a philosophy student, Tim Whiffen. Hello, listeners. Tim is not with us tonight. He is out playing touch football in 10 degree temperature and pouring rain and was explaining to me on his bus trip home how he was going to have to cover the driver's seat of his car in plastic bags and towels so he doesn't put mud all over his car. So as we can now see, Tim has learnt the benefits of team sport. So with that out the way, and without further ado, Warwick Billings, welcome to Blind Insights. Thanks, David. That was a lovely short hello. I I like that. Now, Now, where to begin? You've got a lovely English accent. So clearly you started life somewhere else and what you said to Karen and I at the market is you learnt cider making in Somerset, which as far as I know is the home of cider. Am I right yeah. on either count? Yes, yeah, spot on, spot on. Well, not quite right because I was actually born in Australia, but my parents sort of did the reverse 10-pound pop. Oh, they wow. Were the, they were the 10-pound Aussies and they went to England when I was three. So I grew up in England and finished up living on a farm in Somerset which, as you rightly pointed out, is the ancestral home of cider. So um, did the farm you grew up on have apples and it was already a foregone conclusion that you were going to become an apple man? Or where did the, the love of cider making and other – actually, what is a cider maker called? Do you get called a brewer, a no, cider maker? No, 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 so, no, no. Cider maker, cider maker. So, Lots of people call, call us brewers but, or cider brewers, but it's, it's, not, it's not brewing. Brewing involves boiling stuff. That's how you make beer. So was really the, the closest thing is in real terms wine, where it's fruit and yeast, and you you know you be relying on that interaction. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's exactly. It's it, it is a fruit wine. So cider, technically, if you delved into it, is a fruit wine. So it's it's the wine made from apples. Okay, so we te- yeah. we we tend to call wine with a hidden sort of prefix of the word grape. Ah. you can make wine out of loads of things. Yeah, it's just that generally speaking, wine tends to almost always mean grape wine unless you use some other fruit to qualify. And that then, yeah, you know, again, we'll get into this later. We'll let you explain the the genesis of Warwick, the cider maker. But your <laughs> nine year old pear cider is outstanding because the only thing it doesn't taste like is pears. There's all this amazing cinnamon and there's all these amazing age characteristics and it's got this beautiful bead like a French champagne. There's all this technical amazing stuff going on and this incredible taste of cinnamon and cloves. 
but yeah. it's all these amazing flavors that have emerged from the process, I guess. Yeah, so, and no one's, you know, reasonably unusual because nine years old is fairly unusual for a cider. Because um, it's too good and everyone drinks it too fast. So no one ever lays cider down for that length of time. It's relatively rare. People do, but it's relatively okay. rare. And that one has turned out particularly well. Yeah, because you were giving it's, us it, the warning that maybe the the occasional bottle, you know, tastes a bit different, whereas ours was just utterly amazing. Yeah, and 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 most of them are. Mm. <laughs> yeah, but I but I kind of give people the warning just in case. Yeah, um, so you're you, giving them the one in a hundred warning. That's right, just yeah. in case. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, nine year old cider, there probably is a chance that that people will hit the odd one, mm. but but. It's been lovely since since it since its inception. We chose some very good pears. It was lovely when it was three weeks old. It was lovely when it was three months old. It was lovely when it was three years old. It, it has little phases, but it's still drinking very well. That's incredible to think that if it was lovely at three weeks and it stayed lovely, that there's any left. Well, we probably made slightly too much, but right, okay. I was going to say, how many tons of pears did you use? Uh, several. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, that explains a lot more because I'm like, well, it was lovely at every phase. Okay. We've got far ahead here. Listeners, the big thing with this is when you stop listening to this episode or you can press pause right now if you want and you go to the Lobo Cider website, which is lobocider.com.au, I recommend you order a six pack of the pear cider because it's outstanding. Now, these are the 750 ml bottles. I think at the time of recording, I think the deal on the website is $90 for the six-pack. Does that sound right, Warwick? Yeah, they'd be $90, and I think we charge you $9 to get them to you. Okay, so $99 for awesome Perry goodness. What sounds better than that? Yeah, yeah absolutely. You, you should be an advertising guys. <laughs> I am, as he knows. Yeah, cool. Let, let's go back to the early days of... Warwick on the farm. So were there apple trees and pear trees on the farm? Yeah, absolutely. So like people say, when you start making cider? And I go, I go, well, I got involved in the cider industry when I was about eight because we used to get sent up the apple trees to shake them, to get the apples to fall on the ground so that we could then get on the ground and pick all the apples up and put them in bags and then take them to the local cider mill. Is it okay for fruit to drop when it's going to be cider because it's going to be crushed so quick that bruising is then not a problem? Uh, it's traditional in Europe, and, and it's it's not at all about crushing so quick. In, in actual fact, a traditional cider in Europe is made with real cider apples, is often picked from the ground, so they wait until the trees, until the apples fall off the trees. Wow. Or they wait until they mostly fall off the trees, and then they might get some help from small children or mm -hmm. large sticks. And then historically they used to leave them in bags for a couple of weeks before they crushed them because then they complete the turning of starch into sugar. So you get the maximum Maximum sugar. sweetness. Okay. Yeah. So apples aren't like grapes. So grapes kind of just get sweeter and sweeter and sweeter until they start to shrivel and they're over. Mm -hmm. But apples actually accumulate starch, so they can get to quite a big size but still be very starchy. They're not sweet. Okay. And then as they ripen, that starch turns into sugar, which is what you want if you're going to ferment them. So in a sense, falling from the tree is an indication that the apple is pretty close to ready. Yeah, that's right. Okay. I mean, so ancestrally, the apple falls off the tree and then the wildlife eats it, drops off somewhere, has a little crap and lays some 
pips somewhere new and yep. off they go again. Yeah, and you get your next apple. Or if you're yep. on the Botswana border and you have all that fruit that ferments before it drops, you get drunk elephants. So yeah. cider's not quite as exciting as that, but it's on the well, way. Well, you've already got the conversion. I'll, I'll, I'll cut you off there. So apples come from a, a set of mountains in Kazakhstan on the Kazakhstan-China border. Wow. And they reckon that the bears have been selecting the apples because the bears prefer the sweet ones. So make, the bears that live in these mountains have been selecting over millennia the better apples. That's very cool. I like yes. that idea. Like again, in my former career as an academic, I wrote an article on the dawn of farming with a couple of medical anthropologists that I also oh, record yes. podcasts with. And part of our argument was that initially, what made it work was exactly what you described: humans doing the same thing. That's the blueberry bush we like. Mm. So that's the one we're going to pick. We're going to trample the one beside it to get to the one we like. Yeah, that's so, exactly that. Yeah, accident. Well, deliberate selection without necessarily understanding what you're doing probably has made all sorts of things. And the other example we used is okay, if you like a particular kind of tree in the forest because it's very good for spears or bows or some other thing, well, you're going to break other trees down to protect the tree you like so it grows. Mm -hmm. So you're going to start changing the nature of the forest. So the interesting example of that, sorry, listeners, we're off track, but we're having fun, is for much of the Amazon where people live. There's only 35 tree varieties. When you yeah. move into the areas without people, you can have 135 tree varieties. Interesting. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Yeah. So at eight, you didn't understand this when you were climbing up the tree. You just knew it was kind of fun to be allowed to climb trees and go very high exactly. and do dangerous stuff. Yeah. And, 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 and it was dangerous because the trick was to get out as far as you could on the branches because then when you jump up and down, they wiggle. Ah. So, so every year, so some kid broke an fun. arm or a leg. Yeah, that kind of thing, yeah. <laughs> oh, well. Come, it's all educational. I survived most of the falls. Yeah. As long as you don't land on your head, it's all good. Yeah. So at eight or nine, you're doing that. Would you get a chance to go along? What do you call a place where cider is made? Is it a cidery? So in England, the big place is called a cider mill. Right. A small place is probably called a cider house. Okay. Here we tend to call them cideries. Right just because we call wineries wineries, so it kind of makes sense. We just went with the language we know from something similar. Yep. Yeah, well, it works. Like if you say to someone, there's a cider house, they don't really know what you mean. But if you, yeah. if you say there's a cidery, then they'll, they get it completely. I like it how we just adapt and evolve, and particularly yeah. when there's something tasty at the end. So when you would jump up and down on the trees and get the apples down, was that your last interaction as a little human? Or would you no, get no, no, to no. go so, to the cidery and be more involved in, like, you know, squishing fruit and doing fun stuff as well? Uh, so, no. At that point, we used to pick up the apples off the ground, which was a bad job. That was no fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and then we'd load them into a trailer or a, sometimes a horse float and take them to – Aside a mill, which is a fairly industrial kind of a place. Mm-hmm. And then we used to love watching them. So they'd tip out, they'd weigh our bags and they'd give us a few cents or shillings or dollar mm. pounds, I guess. Uh, I didn't, yeah. They'd give us some money anyway. Mm. And then you'd head off and tip them into a into a pit mm-hmm. and, uh, and see them disappear. And that was, that was the end of it. And then you knew that they were making cider, which is what the grown-ups got into. <laughs> And then the grown-ups looked more excited and you just took your little bit of cash and were very happy for a week. That's sort of about how it worked, yeah. <laughs> That's pretty good. So how long was it before, well, obviously, you know, 18 or probably slightly before you had decided cider tasted good? Yeah, so again, you know, it's a sign of the times a little bit. 
in that part of the world in those days, it was pretty normal to give kids um, a dash of cider and quite a lot of lemonade. Yeah, like I grew up with, you know, port and lemonade the same way here in Australia. That was sort of the version when I was a little kid. Yeah, exactly. And then as you got older, the version got slightly stronger. Yeah. And, you know, probably at the age of 15, I would be out helping people making hay and that kind of thing in the fields. And Mm -hmm. there would generally be a flagon of cider sitting in a hedge. Um, And in between loads, you'd have a sip. We often, we often had, a strong, a full strength and a diluter one. Okay. Um, so that the work could get done. Um, yeah. But at the end of the day, you'd probably be drinking the full strength one. And I'm guessing that the original logic was tons of sugar and probably a good thing to stop the muscle pain from working so hard. Yeah. And there's a historical context as well. So in the cider making regions of England and France, and I would suspect elsewhere because it sort of happened in wine as well. Agricultural wages were paid partially in, in cider in the old, old days. So it's almost uh, like being paid in small beer. You know, it was safer than the water, so you pay people in what they can consume that yeah. gives them calories and is safe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. So, so it, was, it was safe, it was good, and if you made better cider, you kept more stuff. Which means your um, stuff gets picked first and when you want it and just all the benefits, which means next year, you know, maybe another grower wants to work with you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So so there was there was a synergy. Uh, that that all became it, it evolved its way out, the non existence. But the the farm where I grew up, if you looked at Victorian era, so a hundred years earlier, maps, uh probably 30 or 40% of the area was covered in apple trees. Wow. And they probably would have made an excess and sold that for, for money. Yeah. And also those apple trees in the southwest of England, in Normandy and France, in Brittany, they're all big trees with grass underneath. <clears throat> so they're dual purpose. It's not just an, an orchard where you grow apples. It's an orchard where you grow apples and graze your cattle and graze your sheep or graze your geese or whatever. So so it's multi-purpose. It, it's it's sort of genuine mixed farming. You're part of a mixed farm. So you might have two rows of apples. It may not be the centre of your, your income, but it's another income. That's right. Yeah. And it, and it, it's, there's no down cost to it. Like yeah. there's probably a synergy. So everything is actually working better because you've done that. Yeah. But the, the downside is that it's less production per hectare and you've got a finger in lots of pies, whereas people want to make money. Yeah, like I, I grew up on a farm with a Hungarian grandmother who was used to mixed farming. So when she came to Australia and started talking to farmers here about all the things they could do on their farms, it blew their minds. Yeah. Because so yeah. much of the tradition was here in South Australia, well, you've got some sheep and you've grown some wheat and wool and wheat. And, well, in the end, you know, the wheat was getting crushed to feed pigs and chickens and geese and ducks. And the skim milk was going to the pigs so they grew faster and the cream was going to be turned into butter, and it just ended up being all these interconnected things where there was always something worth something and always something to do, you know, that had some extra value. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's this guy on telly in Tasmania who sort of does it a bit, and people aspire to it. It's, it's mm. a dream, you know, that mixed farming yeah. where you do a bit of everything, you have a lovely life. They forget that it's actually quite hard work. Yeah, because the um, more things you have, the more you need to know and the more work you do. Yeah, basically it never stops. That's, yeah. that's 
<laughs> but but if you if it's a lifestyle and you enjoy it, then it's yeah. actually pretty good. So did you roll straight towards learning to being a cider maker, or was it the accidental career that found you later? So it carries on from there. So probably age, I don't know, 13, 14, I started making other fruit wines. In England, I don't know if there still is, but back then there was certainly a reasonably strong tradition of local fruit wines. So you'd make stuff out of hawthorn, stuff out of blackberries, stuff out of strawberries. And you know, I was 13 or 14. I didn't really like drinking them because they didn't taste too good, but I'd, mm. I'd try them out on my but it parents. It was fun making it. Yep. Yeah, it was fun making it. I'd try them out on my parents and occasionally we'd get a win and uh, we'd try some more of that the next year. And, and you know, from that you learn that the different seasons produce different things. And uh, then after a bit, I sort of thought, well, actually I should try making some cider out of the apples instead of we take them all to the cider mill. Mm-hmm. So we made some cider um, and everybody thought that was pretty good. Like the first batch of cider I made, we crushed the apples in a bucket on the kitchen floor with a, a sauce bottle full of water. <laughs> to give it to give it some weight, it wasn't yep. heavy enough. Wasn't heavy enough. Yeah. So we had to fill it out with water and stomp it with that, <laughs> and then uh, we wrung the the pulp out through t-shirts, and that was the first twenty liters. And it turned out well, and and the bug kind of bit. Yeah, no, it was good. Uh, it was good. So so no, so the bug the bug carried on, sort of on a low key, and then as I became of drinking age, you discover that there's all these farms who've got some cider, and you go and visit them and some of them sell it and some of them they won't give it to you unless you know them. Mm. Um, but so you discover that there's a whole world of cider mm. out in those parts of the world. And then a few years after that, a friend of mine who was a, you know, let's go and visit cider houses and try their ciders, buddy, he went, oh, I'm going to try making some cider commercially. So he made some commercially. I helped him. and. Six months on, he goes, I've sold it all. Uh, I'm going to make more next year. Do you want my gear? So I borrowed all of his equipment and started making cider commercially. So just step by step until suddenly this is your thing. And yeah, so everyone making cider there, was there like lots of different varieties of apples and lots of different styles or was it a thing that a hundred people would be using similar apples but there was just slight differences depending on how they did it or you know lots of variety or not a lot of variety what was it like at that point yeah so they're all different so there's hundreds and hundreds of different varieties of apple okay if you ask an apple person there's over five thousand wow i know i know there's a database that Apple people use to find out if the variety they think is true to what they think it is, then there's mm-hmm. 5,000 varieties in that database. Wow. So there'd be heaps more apples in the world. Yeah. But in on farms in, in England back then, there was a sort of selection that had happened over time, mm. though there were some varieties that were known to make better cider. But there were also, um, like every, every new pit that you plant from an apple is a new tree. So they're they're cross fertilized. So every pit is a is a distinct, slightly different genetically tree. different being. Yeah. Wow. So it's easy to get different apples. So what had happened over time was that lots of farms had their own selection of apples mm-hmm. that were unique, pretty much to that farm, um, and they made they had an influence on the cider, if you like. So were the ciders different? Yes. Okay. There's plenty of difference that comes from how you make it. 
And there's plenty of difference that comes from the care that you apply to making it. So really the, the variables are massive and everyone's going to get a slightly different result. And the trees are helping you too, because each little orchard is going to constantly be cross-pollinating itself in the most exciting ways. Yeah. So I used to buy apples from what I used to call a balanced orchard, which is an old-fashioned orchard where somebody has chosen all those trees, because if you pick all those apples and put them together, you make nice cider. Oh, wow. And then you get other orchards that have been planted where there's a mixture of varieties, more likely to know what they are. Mm. But they won't necessarily, if you put them all together, make the best cider. So an old cider farm in England or France you know, quite possibly had this orchard where it was really designed that all the trees got picked and you made a cider out of all of them because that's how you were going to get your overall style and flavour you liked. Yeah, and wow. that's what they did. And, I mean, the other reason for doing that is, like, if you depended on cider to get a workforce and all that kind of thing – you needed a range of trees so that if, if three or four of your tree varieties had a bad year, you still had enough cider. Interesting. So there's a risk management thing, you know, historically. They probably didn't realise it was risk management, but, but you had a variety so that, so that that could happen. So it's quite incredible that, you know, here we have all these things evolve so people have what they need and have things they enjoy and have something to trade. Yeah, and, yeah. I and, mean, yet, and there's some there's some terrific you know sociology behind it all if you yeah. like. So how many sort of farms in England or France have still got those orchards with that diversity? Like, are they like cider's holy grail now to go and visit those farms that have got that diversity, where cider is still made there only using the, you know, the apples from that farm? Is is that like something that you know serious cider people will travel across the country to just go and have a pint on that place of their specific cider? I don't think most people would appreciate the the detail of that. Okay. People go to drink the cider because it's nice. Right, but they don't really care why it's nice. It just is. Yeah, that's right. You, right. You, you're kind of more into the slow food philosophy there of, of, of appreciating why it's nice. Yeah. I think most people just like it because it's nice. But there are still farms that are like that. I think in the 21st century, as people are getting more modern, they've chosen the one, the apples that they believe were best and planted more of those. Yeah. The way it goes. So, you know, you've got this experience of growing up in this environment where it's got this incredible heritage of diversity in the apples, lots of people making cider, the cider turning out quite different, and there being plenty of cider around you to try. Yeah. What was the contrast like when you came back to Australia? You know, and okay, you know, you're now making cider in the Adelaide Hills at Lenswood, and yeah. Lenswood has quite a history of apples, but does it have anything like the history of these fascinating orchards that were so central to the community and were planted specifically to make the product? Or were we growing table apples and it's been a real modification and transition to go into cider making here? It's more complicated than that, to be honest. So back along, I'm told or I read that on Norton Summit Road, there was a farm where they had over 400 varieties of apple. Wow. And that would have been like early 1800s because they were pioneering days and people were trying to figure out which ones would work. Yep. So in many ways, it's not that different in philosophy. It's just yeah. like they've arrived. 
Yeah. They know they know that it's a different place. How are we going to figure out what works? And the answer yep. is we'll try loads of them and the ones that survive we'll carry on with. And I'm assuming apple seeds are pretty robust and that literally, you know, when you came out here from England, you could come out with, you know, little sort of paper sachets with different kinds of seeds in them, all ready to start growing your trees once you found your place. Yeah, yeah. So the, the seed would the seed would travel that time distance easily. Okay. Um and, and they were actually drinking cider. Uh, on the ships at the time as well. So Captain Cook is reputed to have had cider on board because they thought it might help with the scurvy. Interesting, yep. Yeah, it, it wasn't as good as the limes. but No, but it was a it. start to try and work it out a bit. And it yeah, was extra they knew calories they had in the diet. Yeah. Sorry? It was extra calories in the diet for people working very hard as well. Yeah, yeah. And and it was probably safe drinking too. Yeah. Um, but but they, they, they definitely knew that it might help with scurvy, so they, they made sure they had it. In that historical context, was cider historically something that was made at very low alcohol levels, almost like small beer as a water substitute, and then people would make mid-strength and then they'd make strong? Was it very deliberately that there were different versions for different purposes? So historically, there was regular strength, which was sort of five-ish percentish, and then they did water back the pomace, which is, I think it's a bit the same as small beer. It's the same as mm. uh, they used to do with wine. Mm-hmm. So you can water back the pomace and get the residual sugar out after you've pressed it. So you press it for the good stuff. Mm-hmm. There's still a bit of sugar left. You can wash that and press it again and you'll get more sugar. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you'll only get 1.5% alcohol or something like that. So yeah, Just yeah, enough people. to make it safe uh, you yeah. know, as a substitute where you can still work with tools and be a roofer and safely walk on the tiles. Yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and people, people have been doing that forever um, mm. because in in the old days that had a value. Mm. You know, nowadays the cost of sugar is is next to nothing. Mm. But back then, it, unless you grew it, you didn't have it. Yeah. Um, and there was some sugar that you were throwing away. The, like we used to feed the grape or the apple mark, the apple pomace to cows, and the cows would fight for it. Like yeah, I was just, going to say, imagine it be like crack for cows. They would have loved it. Yeah, that, it was just like the best thing they had all year. Yeah. You know, if, you, if you ate grass all year and someone turned up with a bit of squashed apple, that was yeah. pretty exciting. Yeah. You know, like on, on the farm I grew up on, we had carob trees. And if you, you know, raked up some of the carobs when they fell and took them out for the cows, you yeah. very quickly found out who was dominant and who was a pig. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> they would be at the front gobbling carobs and kicking everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I can imagine. So when you, you know, uh, uh, did you come straight to South Australia when you came back to Australia to make cider or you kind of got out of cider making for a while when you came yeah. back? Or So, again, there's a bit more story to that. Mm. Um, I actually, I had a reasonably successful cider making business in England, but it had got to the point where there was a fair bit of money involved and I was conscious of the fact that I had really no idea about the technology or the science. Um, so I thought to myself, I'll go and steal all the ideas from the wine people. Yep. Um, so I finished up at Rosebury. Oh, wow. So um, literally the other side of the world and studying winemaking to get all the yep. technical knowledge. And this is interesting you say this because, um, you know, you might be familiar with Crabtree Wines at Clare. Yep. I'm friends with Robert Crabtree, and yeah, that's exactly Robert. Robert's path was much like yours. You know, started off making fruit wine, then wanted to be a winemaker, and ended up with an opportunity in France, and then ended up in New Zealand making 
in more wine and then ended up here in South Australia and eventually with a mountain of experience then did the winemaking course at Roseworthy again to pick up the technical skills where yeah. he had tons of experience but he knew there were some gaps where he knew what to do but he didn't necessarily know why it worked yep a very similar very similar um, story so so I, I knew there was stuff going on I knew it was important but I didn't understand it so if you'd stayed in the UK, could you do a cider makers course in England in the equivalent of somewhere like Roseworthy, or it was very much you learnt as an amateur, and if you were good, you got a job and you know you got hired, but it was up to you to get yourself there. I think the vast majority of the smaller cider makers were self-employed. Okay. And the bigger people were probably food technologists. Okay. Um, there, you know, there's always been some fairly good. You know, funnily enough. Here we are. At, I'm at Roseworthy studying, and I'm I'm learning about tartrate stabilization. And there was a guy called Professor Beach, Fred Beach, who'd written one of the sort of seminal papers on tartrate stabilization in wines. And I'm going like, I went to a lecture by Fred Beach on cider making in England three or four years ago, <laughs> and he was actually completely English and had worked in the cider world for a long time, and that had him had evolved into the British wine world. British wine is different to English wine. Okay. Uh, in the old days, British wine meant wine made from concentrate or dried grapes or anything that wasn't really grape wine. So all that fruit wine kind of gone sideways. Yeah, kind of gone sideways and exploded because there were no grapes to speak yep. of in England. Yeah, but they still, you know, had thirsty people, so they had yep. to make something, and there was a big industry doing it. Um, and so there was a facility, very parallel to Roseworthy, actually, that started. I think it started in like about eighteen ninety five in um, just outside Bristol, mm. in England, called Long Ashton, which was the cider research centre of probably of the universe at that time. Yeah. But there was a very similar story to Rose where they'd, they worked out they'd pro- they had a couple of problems. They worked out they had some scientists. If they put them all in one room, they'd come up with the answers. Yep. And then having done that, they started teaching a few people. And it, you know, it was hugely respected. And you know, cross-pollination between there and here, I've spoken to people who work there who've worked for the AWRI. Oh, wow. And people from the AWRI have been to well, back in the day. It's all closed now. But back in the day, they went to work for Long Ashton. That's amazing. So even though they were working with different fruits, there was still so much in common that people went back and forth and shared all the knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so what period did you go through Roseworthy? You know, when did you do that? So I was a mature student. I finished there in 95. Oh, wow. So really, I think Robert was very late 80s. So even they're not massively different in time frame. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing how small the world is. And to, to put it in context, you know, listeners, the farm I grew up on is only about three kilometres from Roseworthy College. Oh, okay. So when I was a university undergrad at Adelaide University in the early 90s, of course, it was a uni bar, which means you could use your student card to get in to get cheap beer. So many yep. a Friday night I spent at Roseworthy, you know, university, week university, the Roseworthy College bar when it still had one. Yeah, cool. So strange synchronicities. So you're back in Australia, you're learning this. Was your plan originally you were going to learn it and go back to England because that's where the big 
you know, industry was and that's where, you know, huge amounts of apple trees were? Or was the plan to do the, the research and then really show Australians how amazing Somerset cider could be? Uh, no. So the plan was very much to go back to England. So I finished the course and then I thought, well, you know, I've done this winemaking course. Maybe I should just go and work in a winery for a bit and see see what the practicality is. So I went and worked in Griffith for three or four months. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, well, you know, maybe I should go and do a, another wine vintage in France and see what's different. So I went to France for two or three months. And then I went back to England to my cider making business and made cider and sold cider. And then it gets quite quiet selling cider in January, February in England because it's cold and De- people tend to winter. Cider when it's sunny. So it's it's sort of coming up to January and I'm going like, I could go back to Australia and do another one of those wine vintages and, uh, you know, that would be good for the the bank. And so I did that for two or three years. I was working in France, Australia and England. Um, Wow. And then after after probably somewhere between the second and third cycle, sort of going, oh, I'm getting worn out and uh, I'm actually making more money in Australia and having fun in Australia. The weather's better. Yeah. So, so, so I joined the wine industry. Okay. Um, so you, you really settling here was the wine thing stuck for a while as being well. Australia does wine. I'm a winemaker. It's a nice place. The weather's good. Yeah, and and I had some family reasons as well. My grandparents were living in Melbourne and were getting okay. a bit old, and it was nice to spend a bit of time with them. Yeah. But yeah, so I, so I finished up in Australia, joined the wine industry, did did fairly well at all of that, and then. A friend was making cider in the Adelaide Hills. Aha. Uh-huh. And uh, I popped in to see him and uh, he said, oh, let's go and you know, check out the cider because you like cider, don't you? And we checked out the cider. I'm going, it's not very good. <laughs> 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 Who's helping you? And, they, and, and the two of them went, oh, it's this winemaker from down the road. It's like, all right. He's making it like a winemaker, not a cider maker. Um, there's a problem here. <laughs> it's not very good. I visited a couple of times and they weren't getting any better at it. So, so I sort of said, well, like, if you'd like to do it better, I'll give you a hand. So I used to commute down from the Riverland to the Adelaide Hills every sort of three or four weeks and uh, supervise and make this cider. And the cider got better and better. And uh, then after a few years, it's like, well, we've been messing around now. Like, Let's get serious. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so we did. And that's basically when Lobo Cider came t- to life at that point where you decided to take that seriously. Yeah, absolutely. That was that was how Lobo was born. So what's the first year of sort of bottles going out with Lobo stickers on them? I think it was probably 2008. Oh, wow. Okay. So where we're drinking the 2014 pair, it's sort of, you know, a bit into the very serious side, but really still quite young in the process. Yeah, yeah, we we were still like figuring out, you know, which pairs were best. Like, there's some really interesting pair history in South Australia. You know, I couldn't put my name, or I couldn't put a name to the varieties, but there's some very old pear trees around. And in actual fact, that cider that you like is made out of lemon bergamot pears. Wow! I don't know if, have you have you eaten a lemon bergamot pear? No, but I love the fact it's called that because I imagine it's called it because it must smell like it or taste like it. Yeah, I, I think it's probably it smells more like the blossom, to be honest. But okay, um, I haven't okay, smelled so, the blossom, but now I want to. Yeah, the stall across across the way, the um, the pomologist, mm-hmm. he has them usually when they're in season. Oh, all right. We'll have to go um, and smell. 
That's yeah. cool. It's, so it, it's a fairly short season pear because it doesn't keep super well, and it's a mm-hmm. bit of a South Australian speciality. And it's dying out because the supermarkets don't really like them because they don't have good shelf life. Yeah. So the growers are struggling to sell them, so they're pulling them out. But when when we've got them in the cool room and people try one fresh, they go, wow, that's the best pair I've ever eaten. Golly. So once you got really serious, did this mean gradually you would just, every time you were going somewhere, if you saw a pear or an apple tree with a fruit hanging over a fence, you'd like, I'm just going to go and grab that apple or pear just in case you found another variety you needed for the orchard? Or were the orchards really already in a, a good state to make good cider? Or is it an ongoing thing to get the orchard the way you need and want it? No. So so when we started, <clears throat> we basically made trial batches of probably 200 litres, maybe a bit less, of all the apples that we could get hold of. Mm-hmm. It's a fairly long game. If you if you discover the perfect apple and you start growing it, it's going to take you six or seven years before you've got any mm-hmm. to speak of. So basically we, we rounded up all the apples we could get hold of and tried them and, and finished up kind of deciding that Red Delicious was a good apple cider, Golden Delicious isn't bad, and Pink Lady is pretty good. So all the ones that people like eating too. So it means you've got lovely apples for people to chew on one and they're all good for cider. So it's really a win-win. Yeah, that's right. So like Granny Smith's are less good. Fuji is less good. Because they don't make as much sugar or they taste different or both? It's a, it's a different balance. Okay. But, but you know, it was serendipitous that Pink Ladies were good mm. because most growers have pulled out most Red Delicious now. Yeah, that makes me sad because they were my favourite apple like as a teenager and in my 20s and I noticed they disappeared and I'm kind of annoyed they disappeared because even though I can't see what colour they are, that's the taste I like. I agree. They taste great but Mm. it's the same same deal. They go flowery and then then nobody will eat them. Yeah, so very short lifespan before they have to chuck all that value. Yeah, yeah, medium, not short, short. There's other varieties that only last once you pick them for like a week or 10 days. Okay. So medium medium lifespan, but but at the end of the day, um, you're not as not as suited to the modern world as 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 a pink lady. So in um, a sense, pink- that means that Red Delicious will keep going in the orchards you're using because you guys have a definite use. You know, you can deal with the fact it's only got the short life. Yeah, no, uh, <laughs> no is the short answer. Oh, right. um, because like most of the apples that we use, so it's, again, it's a bit more of a story, but. Most of the apples that we use are the byproduct of apple growing for eating. Ah, so, so rather than growing the whole orchard for cider, it's a yeah. case here of using the excess or the ones that don't look, you know, perfect or yeah, that fell off it. the tree and got a bump. Okay. Yeah. It's the, it, so we get the knobbly apples. Yeah. Basically, if you grow apples for a living, you pick the apples and inevitably, even if your pickers have been told that on no account should they pick apples with a bump, Mm. The bumps on the other side, they get picked. Yeah, and then and then they finish up being it's called packing. So they pack them where somebody grades them. They choose mm. them by size and they choose them by appearance, mm. and that's what they sell. And then there is this off grade, which is the ones that they don't really want to put with the good ones, mm. which is called a juice grade, and that's what we use. And so what that really means is having 
a really good cider maker nearby if you're growing apples is really good because suddenly you've got extra value from this bit of the crop that normally, you know, maybe you've got a friend who's a farmer and they can feed them to their cows or their pigs or something. So you're getting extra value this way. Yeah, we've definitely added value to to those apples. Yeah, mm. but then we also so we also grow some of the European cider apples. Okay, so so those seven fifty mil bottles that you drank, mm-hmm. they have a reasonable content of European cider apple, and the European cider apples have been bred for centuries and centuries to have more flavour, more tannin, and uh, the other thing that they breed them for is pressability. So when you press them, you get juice. Ah, so they really have been selected. Very... So what are they like? You know, if you if you grab a ripe one off a tree and bite it, what's the experience like? Yeah, some of them aren't very nice. Which is really, really tannic, <laughs> and the sugar yeah. really only comes out once you, you press them. Okay, That's right. So they're really tannic. Um, they can be quite bitter. They can be – so they can be astringent and or bitter. Okay. Okay. Um, but often they have quite nice flavours. So it, apples have gone a little bit the way of tomatoes in that by breeding apples for the supermarket shelf life, you know, mm. whatever you want to call it, the supply chain, they've lost a little bit of flavour. as a Yeah, priority. to get the perfect appearance and the uniform shape. Yeah, perfect appearance, uniform shape, and also shelf life. Right. Like, so, so they can put it on a truck, they can take it to Queensland, yeah. it'll still look like an apple, and then they can put it on a shelf and it'll sit there for three weeks. Yeah. It it probably explains why, as a kid, I loved apples and now I'd rather drink cider. And it's not yeah. just because I like cider more, it's because apples are no longer particularly apple That's right. Apples have changed, yeah. Yeah. So in the case of the, the three ciders we bought you know, to have – one was the pear one, so we've talked about that. One was mm-hmm. called Lens Wolf. Now that strikes yep. me that Lens is the place, so the Lens Wood. Yep. The Wolf is that a stylistic thing, or has that got something to do with the cider apple, or it just sounds cool? No, no. So Lobo means wolf in Spanish. Ah, so it's another way to put the wolf in the name. Okay. Yeah, there, there is. Yeah, every single one of our labels has a wolf on it. Oh, well, see, um, these are the important things I miss because like, yeah, one of my favorite. Actually, you don't you don't get the benefit of that. No, because um, one of my favorite books is called The Philosopher and the Wolf, which is all about an Oxford trained philosopher who buys a wolf pup and whose life gets totally changed by having to live with an apex predator. Yeah, right. It's the okay. best book if you get a chance. Yeah, read it. And if you ever meet Mark Rollins who wrote it, tell him he's a mean man for not coming on Blind Insights. <laughs> okay, I'll look out for it. So, yeah, of the three ciders, so, you know, it was my wife, Karen, our friend Tanya and me, we agreed we all liked the pear best. Yep. Now, the two ladies then picked the Lens Wolf as yep. being the one they really liked. Yeah. What what were you going for when you made Lens Wolf? Is that like a traditional in the middle, just really yum cider? Is that like the welcome to quality cider type cider you make? So the Lens Wolf is off dry. So it's not it's not bone dry, mm-hmm. and that's quite a hard cider making thing to do. So those ciders are all preservative free; mm-hmm. they're all unfiltered. So you have to reach a point in the fermentation where it doesn't want to go any further. Ah, okay. So like with wine, it's it's like not adding sulfides to stop the fermentation. So. Yeah, you don't usually add sulfites to stop the fermentation. 
you add sulfites to preserve the freshness. Oh, okay. But in the cider, they keep pretty well. So you can make cider with plenty of sulfites. Um and you probably finish up with something slightly fruitier. Okay. But having come from an English farmhouse cider-making background where sulfur was like, yeah, what's this stuff? It's all chemical. We don't want to use that. Just learned how to do it with the fruit. You didn't even think of using the add-on. That's right. You don't actually need to use it, and you can okay. still make lovely cider, you know, bottles, case in point. And yep. that the pear cider is 2014 vintage with no preservatives, so no sulfites, mm-hmm. no nothing. And which is a, which is a, you know an outstanding statement of again you've learned to work with the fruit and the physical environment what's it telling you and how you know, how do you nudge something in a direction when you're not adding anything oh yeah no that's that's completely doable <laughs> so so my my kind of mantra on that one is do nothing but do it very carefully uh, <laughs> yeah which is a great line yeah, yeah. So you, you kind of have to know what's going on and you have to know why it's going on. And you can mess with the temperature a bit um, okay. and you can mess with the clarity. So they're your two big variables that with experience, you you tweak them to get the flavour profile you're after. Yeah, they're, they're significant variables, yeah. Okay. So if we look at you know, the other side that we had that night, we had the Norma. Now, the Norma yep. was my favourite of the two Apple ones. And yep. I can't really tell why other – I liked the Lenswolf, but there was something about the Norma to me that was just that little bit more complex and I think probably slightly drier and some more yep. sort of unusual tertiary flavours that I don't know enough about cider to know what words to use other than I want more. Yeah, yeah cool. <laughs> They're the best words. Yeah. <laughs> so the Norma is is drier than the Lenswolf. It's probably – I would probably say it's less flavoursome than the Lenswolf. Yeah, it's subtler. Something about it, it's all these yeah, tiny right. things going on yeah. rather than more overt flavours. Yeah, exactly. It strikes me as like if the Japanese made cider, they'd make that. The Japanese do make cider. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's embryonic, but there's, there's, a, there's a little cider-growing, um, cider-making subregion and I can't remember where it is. I've been there. It's lovely. But, yeah, no, the, the Japanese are, are, are getting into cider. This is a good thing in my opinion because yeah. I think they will make that. Because as I was drinking it, the closest thing I could make sense of it to was Akashi Blue Label where it's sort okay. of a Japanese whiskey that doesn't break the bank. It's very okay. elegant, very subtle, yep. mid-length, and just the, all these little flavors just ease in and out and go, hello. Goodbye. Yeah, cool. Yeah. And just nice. keep doing that. And that's what I really got from like I you know probably could have happily sat there with a whole bottle of Norma on my own and sipped mm. it over two or three hours to just go, all right, it started cold. What does it do when it gets warm? Ah, that might have been another thing. Should we be drinking this straight out of the fridge? Or should like a white wine we be letting it warm up a bit first? Yeah. So <laughs> it's a complicated question. So I know everything I say normally is because I don't know enough to make sensible questions. The easiest answer is is drink it at the same temperature as you would drink your Chardonnay. Right. So let it warm up a bit from where we had it. Yep. Because I noticed they all got more flavour near yeah. the end of the bottle where we had the bottle on the table. 
and were yep. pouring. And by the end, there was always more flavor. So my observation is next time that actually, you know, pull them out 10, 15 minutes before we want to drink them and just let them, you know, come up a couple of degrees. Yeah, I would take the lid off because as they warm up, they'll get more excited possibly. Yep. But yeah, so I would open them and then I, like drink them slowly. They'll warm up naturally. Mm. Uh, <laughs> drink them slowly. Um, of what do you speak? <laughs> but 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 culturally, like we drink beer cold. Yeah. And people go, you know, should I put ice in my cider? I'm going like, if it's hot, put ice in your cider. Like I put ice in my wine. It's like, yeah. why wouldn't you? Yeah, do whatever um, makes you happy at a certain point. Exactly. And if it's hot, you know, drink it with ice because mm. in particular Lobo because it's got plenty of flavor, you know, it's not diluting it away. Mm. But why wouldn't you? But mm. but if you're, if you're, you know, enjoying one of the 750-mil bottles, then not icy cold is better. So eight degrees is better than four degrees. Yeah, and yeah, because it was a night where it was a cold night, but we had them sitting on the table in front of the warm air coming from the air conditioner. So they were probably getting to eight to ten by the end, and the, yeah, they were yeah. tasting better at that point. Yeah, so, so which of the big bottle ciders haven't I had yet, and why should I try them? Because I'm going to. But yeah. for the listeners' sake, what do they need to know? So next next time you're at the market, we'll have one called B Wolf, um, as in B double E, or B one E. So oh, it was going to be called Beer Wolf. Oh, Beer Wolf, right. Okay. Yeah, but but that was wasted on most people, so I took the O out. Um, okay, fair and, enough. And it's much easier to say. Yeah. And the story's there if you want to hear about the story, but it's still just a nice cider called Beer Wolf. <laughs> and slightly drier, slightly more fruit. Where's this one going? Yeah. Again, it's probably similar dryness to the Lens Wolf. They do actually get slightly drier over time. Okay. So they they just gener- gently pop a little in the bottle, not mm. not that you would notice very much, but if you were to drink one every twelve months, you would see them getting slightly dry. Which is my favourite thing to do with wines is to buy a case and drink one every six months for six years because I'm that weird kind of guy. Yeah, so I will probably fun. actually do that with your cider, and I'll buy six packs of the seven fifties and literally have one every six months to try and begin to understand the evolution process. Yeah, you'll find that interesting. Good. Not enough people going down that road. It's a weird thing. Yeah. But so so Beowulf has just a teensy weensy bit of wood. Mm-hmm. Ah, so how many of them have some oak? Is oak normal or is oak rare? It's probably increasing in Australia. In in Europe, old oak is quite common. Okay. Probably because it was the vessel that was available in the old Precisely. days. Precisely, it was more that it was available to store in rather than necessarily for. The... So here, what new oak barrels? So you're getting the vanilla flavour. Not very much. So cider extracts the wood differently to wine. I'm not quite sure why. The, like the, the the wine technologist in me is sort of suspecting that it's a different spectrum of flavours is being extracted because it's a lower alcohol product. Okay. So you're putting cider at six and seven percent into a barrel, it pulls different things out to wine at twelve percent. That seems interesting as an idea because last week I got together with some friends and we drank a bottle of Ardbeg Ugerdale, which oh, yeah. was a fifty seven percent cask strength whiskey that was a mountain of peat, a mountain of smoke. Most amazing sweet fruit notes and just outstanding. But yeah, at fifty seven percent alcohol, what's it pulling out of the oak? Because the wood flavour is completely different. So yeah. that's a really interesting idea you've got there. The extremes of one end of cider yeah. and a hardcore whiskey like that at the other and wine somewhere in the middle. 
Yeah, that's right. And yeah. and I can use an old wine barrel that the wine people would think is making nil contribution to a wine, mm-hmm. and I can put cider in it, and it tastes quite woody. So the great thing is it means you can buy old barrels and save a bit of money and experiment without breaking the bank. Absolutely. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. So this is – Beowulf is the only one that's got oak at the moment? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, oh, and that guy's definitely going to try that. Yeah. But you won't find very much. So it's it's there in the old school oak of more salt and pepper than a flavour. Okay. Well, hey, it will still hopefully be something I can detect. There's a difference, and I can call that difference minimal oak. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Got to start work. somewhere. So this then explains with all your experience of going to Roseworthy why you've also then made mead and made gin and made Calvados because quite simply you have the knowledge, so why not give it a go? Is this pretty much where all these projects came from? Yeah, so – the Mead came about because – so Lobo is a partnership of two people. It's myself who makes things and Michael who grows apples. And he also grows pears. He also grows cherries. And he also grows quinces. Mm-hmm. So one year we squashed some quinces to see what would happen. <laughs> Just because. Just because, yeah. <laughs> and then I discovered that the tax office frowned on putting quince in cider. Oh. Um, because then they consider that to be not cider. It becomes a fruit wine, and then you get into all sorts of other strange rules. So um, it was better to find something else for the quinces. Yeah. So, okay, well, we can't make cider, and the quinces are reasonably tart. You need to mix them with something. Hmm. So, well, they're reasonably tart. What if we mix them with something sweet, like honey? So we looked up the rules about making mead, and, okay, we can do that one. Uh, so we made a mead and it was absolutely delicious. <laughs> yes. When we bought our one bottle home, we opened it while we were cooking lunch and it didn't make it to the pot going on the stove. <laughs> Good. It was like, this is too tasty. Mm. Yeah. And the fact that it's just got that ever so slight effervescence. So it's just yep. got this fine, gentle bubble going on and the quince stops the honey being too much and the honey stops the quince being too much. And it's like, how is this not a thing worldwide? Yeah, yeah, I, absolutely. I can't understand it myself. But, yeah, nobody has yet walked into Dan Murphy's thinking, hmm, I feel like a sparkling quince this <laughs> it's, afternoon. Yes. It's, it's just, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, a, a, you know, it's an openness to try unusual things and to be yeah. really rewarded by doing it. Yeah, that's right. You know, there there are lovely things out there that we don't that they're not mainstream, and it's 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 always lovely when you find them. And I'm glad you found that one. <laughs> so, is this something you make a little bit of every year because there's enough people who now really love it? Yeah, we we make. I don't know what you call a little bit, but we make more than a little bit. Well, you make um, a batch every year that makes it worth doing and that makes people happy. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. right. That, we make we we don't necessarily make it every year. Okay. Um, like sometimes we've made it the second year, but but you know, yeah, it's close to every year. What I'm asking is, am I ever going to cry at your stall because there isn't any? That's the real question. It does happen occasionally, I'm afraid. Yeah. All right. Well, it's your fault. <laughs> and sometimes it's the bee people. Ah, uh, uh, okay, that makes sense because if the if the honey isn't right, then well, you can't make it. Yeah. So, obviously, with quinces, the next experiment—well, not obviously, but another opportunity was what happens if you put a quince in gin? 
Yeah, so that one, like the gin boom started whenever it started now, probably six or seven years ago. Mm. And, uh, you know, we were making booze. So we talked about, you know, should we make gin? And and my sort of view was that there's lots of people with lots of money making quite big budget gin. You know, and I've, making I've it met badly. People in the, I've met people in the gin world who, who've come from the financial world and they've gone, oh, yeah, we thought we'd chuck half a million at it and see where we got to. Mm. And it's like, well, I'm not in those circles. <laughs> no. Yeah, but a lot of those gins taste like that. Yeah. So, so we let the gin thing go past. Mm. And then one day Michael was out picking quinces and he rang me up and he said, like, what about quince gin? I blend things in my head, you know, as, yeah. you, as, you, as you do these things, you get better at imagining how they'll it. work. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a lovely thing to do. It's, it's like, you know. And anyway, so he's gone, like, what about quince gin? And I've gone, ah, that actually could be a really good idea because a fresh quince is a very aromatic beast. Mm. Um, aroma is what you need to make gin. Mm. Because when you distill it, it's the aromas that, that travel. It's going to go up, distill, and get captured. Behind. Yep. Yeah. So we peeled quite a lot of quinces, and then we make an infusion out of that, and then we distill the infusion, and that's a component in the gin. And ah, it so it's gave about us... getting the proportion right, so it just fits right with the other aromatics. Yeah, gin is all about proportions. Like yeah. it, you know, anyone can chuck some juniper in something. But yeah, it's, it's getting all the right amount consistently. Okay. Yeah, because yeah, that's the thing. Now we're on the second bottle, and it's like, yep, it's just as yummy as the first bottle. Yeah, good. <laughs> good. So they do vary slightly, and that's you know for all sorts of reasons. When you're operating on our scale, some variability is just part of life. Yeah, um, and, and but, almost it, it. Well, again, with your let the you know let the orchard speak let the fruit speak you know absolutely so so it comes from the orchard there will be some variability because it came from the orchard but isn't that you know completely honest and isn't that how food should be like you know and isn't it more interesting to go this year tastes different to last year what yeah. changed with the weather and start seeing if you can pick patterns over time yep yep yeah and um, e- even our main the cloudy the 330 mil cloudy side of it varies and I get comments from people going like, oh, I really like trying it through the year because it changes a bit. It's like, mm. yeah, it does. <laughs> so we, we keep to the theme. Like they should mm. taste like they, they should taste like Lobo. They should taste of the orchard and they should taste like Lobo. So we don't want to mm-hmm. scare people by making mm. them sort of wacky extremes. Mm. So we follow, we follow the theme, but we allow ourselves a little bit more leeway on the theme than maybe one of the big companies would. Which is wonderful because, again, that way you get the diversity so you don't ever get bored. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. It's more fun. It's more fun for us. It's more fun for the drinkers. Yeah, everyone wins because, hang on, there's this new note, and then it goes away, and then there's another note. So really, I think the only product I've got no experience of yet that you're making is the Calvados, the Apple brandy. I've only ever had a couple of Spanish ones, and they were really yummy. Is Calvados, Apple brandy, whatever it gets called in different places, is it one of those things? It is very, very common and popular in places where apples are part of the culture long term and Australia's just slow to the party? Or is it a fairly obscure thing even in Spain and France and England? Um, so we suffered from a an Anglo mentality on tax and excise, which obliterated apple brandy in England. Okay. Probably somewhere in the 1700s. Wow. All right, and it ago. didn't restart until the 1980s. Wow. 
possibly even, yeah, no, 1980s would have been when it restarted. And so Australia inherited that mentality, which was the excise, which is the tax you pay on spirits, was like to be defended at all costs by yep. by the excise you know, people. Yep. And so they were very, very discouraging. When we started Lobo in 2007, 2008, we were actually going to make some schnapps because you can. Mm-hmm. And uh, I spoke to the tax office and they said, yeah, 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 yeah. but we'll need a quarter of a million dollar bond. <gasps> yep, mm. okay, not making schnapps. But perhaps we'll stick with cider for a while. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but since then, what's happened in the spirits world, which is why we've got so many craft distillers now, is that somebody at the tax office, I imagine, went, well, really, how much are we going to lose? And maybe there's an upside to liberating the rules a bit and letting craft distillers have a crack. Mm. Uh, I think the Kiwis did it a few years before us and, and you know, they didn't stink. So so the Australian tax office went, well, like, let's give it a go and they liberated the rules a bit and now you can do craft distilling. So that um, means maybe one day you'll revisit schnapps or you're happy making the brandy or the Calvados uh, and the gin? Oh, no, no, no. The, the schnapps is definitely on the cards. <laughs> this is good. New products to make people happy. Yeah, yeah. No, we'll we'll get there probably yeah, I'd probably say twelve months from now. Okay, well that's really exciting. So for next winter I can return to being a good Hungarian boy and drink schnapps. Absolutely. What's what's your preferred schnapps? Plump? Uh again, it was one of those things of being exposed to it as a child. Um, so it was all a bit extreme as a kid, but I think probably Plum was the one once I was 18 and actually Gran would buy like Hungarian branded stuff occasionally when she yeah. would find it and obscure stuff from Yugoslavia and other strange places. Yeah. I think Plum was consistently the best, but I don't know if the ones I had were good. Yeah, okay. Cool. I just know that Plum tasted good relative. Yeah. Some of the cherry ones were truly weird. Yeah. Yeah, no, I've, I have mixed feelings about cherry too. <laughs> okay, well, I'm glad. I thought it was just me being exposed to strange things my Hungarian grandmother brought home. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, yeah. So anyway, but, but like basically, all cider makers want to make apple brandy. So the opportunity arose. At the moment, we have a friend who's a whiskey maker who distills it for us. Mm-hmm. So I provide him with the cider. He distills it. Um, then it's aged, and then we blend it. And that becomes the, yeah, the, well, we call it Lobados is better than Calvados. Uh, oh, the Calvados okay. People, the Calvados people upset. like champagne about their name. They don't like other people using it. All right. I, I will endeavor to improve my pronunciation and say Lobados. So single time through the still, double distilled, how? Double distilled. Okay. So part still, double distilled, aged for the current release is five years old. And yeah, delicious. And this is? This is, I think, the most expensive thing on your website from memory, isn't it? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, it, it's five years old, yeah. Know, it, it, yeah, and there's quite a lot of tax and everything else. Yes. Oh, no, no, I'm just just thinking, like, do I buy lots of cider or one bottle of Lobodos? These are the big, <laughs> important questions to ponder. Ask, have... ask when you're at the farmer's market, because sometimes I have a bottle. Oh, what, for tasting or to sell? A bit of both. Right. Okay. I, I will. We'll put it this way: everything else you make tastes good, so I can't see why you know, I would be taking any risk. But okay, so that's that's yes. It needs to be Beowulf and potentially the Lobo Dos, and then I can tick yeah. off all my fingers and say, from now on, it's only drinking whichever one I feel like. <laughs> Have you tried the three thirty mil bottle? 
Yes, you no, have. No, no. Oh, yeah, because you poured some, yeah, in, yeah. In a, from a tasting cup. Yeah, that, yeah. I don't know whether that was the cloudy or the normal or which one, but yes. Yep, yeah, I remember. Yeah, good. Okay, so, cool. So that was good. Okay, so I have tried nearly everything. Yeah, good. Well, by the sound of it, you can always come back when you make the schnapps and tell us about schnapps making. We'll no, do another I'll, episode. I'll, I'll, I'll come back and tell you about commissioning my stool. Wow, that could be exciting. Does that mean potentially we could bring a mobile kit and sit near the still while distilling is going on and smell the amazing smell? Yeah, possibly. Maybe. I'd have, to, I'd, have to, I'd have to do a risk assessment on the explosion risk, but yeah, possibly. All right. Well, first of all, after you've done the explosion risk assessment, let us know because the smell of a still in full, whatever a still does, is amazing. Yeah, cool. Well, Warwick Billings, thank you very much for coming on Blind Insights and telling me all the things I wanted to know about some of the yummiest things I have drunk this year. Thanks for having me, David. It's been fun. Now, listeners, if you are looking for the wonderful things that Warwick makes out of Michael's fruit, you need to go to lobocider.com.au or you need to go to the farmer's market on the first Sunday of the month and find Warwick. But cider, cider Sunday is an important thing to remember. Cider Sunday is the first Sunday of the month. I just remember it as the first Sunday of the month is when important things are there. <laughs> Sounds good. Warwick, thank you very much for your time. Excellent. Thank you. And we'll see you next Sunday at the market. No worries. We'll see you then. No worries. Bye. Thanks. Thanks, David. Bye. Thank you for listening to Blind Insights. If the ideas of this episode have inspired you, please consider subscribing and sharing with your friends. Do them a favour so we can make a better informed and connected world. Thank you to Solstice Podcasting for use of their studio. If you're interested in making your own podcast, find out more at solsticepodcasting.com.au.